text for the sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. This is the word of our holy God. Let us turn our hearts now to it. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tons as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tons, as the Spirit gave them utterance. There dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Mede and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in their our own lane tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. From 1902 to 1911, Anna Louise Coleman served as a mission worker to the Comanche people at the Cache Creek Reformed Presbyterian Mission about an hour and a half from here. Before she died, she expressed her desire not to be buried in the white man's cemetery, but she said she wanted to rest among her Indian friends. So she was buried in the Indian cemetery a couple miles from the Cache Creek Mission. And on her tombstone were written the words from 2 Kings 4, verse 13, where the godly Shunammite woman said to Elisha, I dwell among my own people. Also written on the words of her tombstone are the words from Acts 17, verse 26, where Paul says he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. In so doing, Anna Coleman gave a beautiful testimony that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not tied to any particular culture or ethnic people, but it is for all peoples of the earth. Christianity is not just for English-speaking Americans or Europeans, but it's for all the peoples of the earth. The gospel is something that transcends culture and is something that people from every single ethnic group in the world can understand and from which they are called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been noting some of the characteristics of the church. 
We say that the church believes in a risen and an ascended Christ. We see that the church must engage in the work of prayer. Last week we saw that the church believes and submits itself to the authority of God's word. And this week as we look at Acts chapter 2, we will see that the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaims a gospel that is for all peoples of the earth. The church proclaims a gospel that is for the African American, the Chinese, the East Indian, and the Comanche. And such a gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Before we investigate what happened at Pentecost, we need to understand something of the context of Pentecost. And so we need, we need, we need to ask that question, what is Pentecost? Well, the word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. The day of Pentecost was 50 days after the celebration of the Passover, and it was the start of the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Harvest. And the day of Pentecost was considered to be the day of first fruits. We read of it in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 16. There we read, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Other words, Pentecost was a religious festival that was commanded by the Lord for the Jews to observe. And in that festival, they praised the Lord for the blessing, for blessing their harvest. And they offered the first fruits of that harvest to him in thanksgiving. And in Acts chapter 2, in the Pentecost, immediately after the ascension of Christ, we see the astounding goodness of our Heavenly Father. Jerusalem had for centuries killed the prophets. Christ said in Luke 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. This Jerusalem had killed the very Messiah that they said they were longing for, that they for centuries had looked towards. Jerusalem had killed the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. But on this day of first fruits, the Father would give the Holy Spirit as a first fruit. As Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to observe this festival by offering the first fruits of their harvest, God would abundantly pour out His Spirit upon the Jews. He, in unconditional love, would continue to bless the city that rebelled against him because he was faithful to his covenant. In so doing, he would be a blessing 
to all the nations of the earth. And we see Paul directly tying the Holy Spirit to this idea of first fruits. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 23, that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And the first fruits of the Spirit are the guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. During our time of Sunday school, we noted how Abraham and Isaac, they sojourned in the land of Canaan. They were not focused solely on the land, the physical land of Canaan, but they were looking towards that heavenly Canaan. And in a similar way, we as believers, this is not our home, but we have that first fruit of the heavenly Jerusalem. We have that guarantee of our inheritance in heaven. We have the down payment for the everlasting life that Christ has earned for us. Thus Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 14 that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so the rich context to the day of Pentecost is that of the day of first fruits. When the Spirit was poured out At Pentecost, it was a seal to the promise of everlasting life. And this promise was to be preached to all the nations by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, it was accompanied by various signs. So what were these signs and what, what, what is the meaning of those signs that attended that outpouring? Well, the Holy Spirit came suddenly from heaven upon the disciples. Our text says in Acts 2, verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This was not a, a gradual buildup. The sound came quickly and with full force. Spirit announced himself with the sound of wind, not with actual wind, but with the sound of it. And this is because the Spirit is often compared to the wind. In John 3, verse 8, we read Jesus say that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Living in Oklahoma, you become familiar with the wind very quickly. You recognize that there is nothing you can possibly do to control it. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can control the Spirit. And this is why it is blasphemous for for certain groups in Christianity to say or act as if they can control or harness the power of the Spirit To heal people. Nobody can control the Spirit. The Spirit blows where He wishes. Just as the wind blows where it wishes. When the Lord spoke to Job at the end of his trials, the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. The Lord spoke from the whirlwind to proclaim his sovereign power over absolutely everything. The Spirit alone 
is powerful to the saving of souls. We cannot breathe the breath of life into a spiritually dead soul. But the Spirit can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. The Spirit is sovereign over the salvation of souls. I could preach to a man until I was blue in the face. But the Spirit was not at work in his heart. That preaching would be in vain. In order for a man to be saved, he must be born again. He must be born of the Spirit. He must have the Spirit blow upon his dead, lifeless heart. Spirits must regenerate the heart of man. And Ezekiel 37 is a stark reminder of this point. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord commands Ezekiel to, to preach to a valley of dry bones, of dry, lifeless bones. In Ezekiel 37, verse 9, the Lord says, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Ezekiel prophesied to them, and the dry bones came to life. And the meaning of this is what the Lord says in Ezekiel 37, verse 14. He says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it. Those dry bones and the spirit causing them to come to life was a picture of our spiritual regeneration, of our dead, lifeless souls being born of the Spirit. If people from every ton, tribe, and nation are to come to faith in Jesus Christ, they must have the Spirit blow upon them to convict them of their sin and misery to enlighten their minds in the knowledge of Christ, and to renew their wills. We must pray that the Spirit would bless the preaching of the Word by blowing upon the hearts of the hearers that they would be born again. And so the Spirit reveals Himself with a sound of wind. The second sign of the Holy Spirit is seen in his descending upon the disciples in the form of divided tons of fire. We read in Acts 2 verse 3, Then there appeared to them divided tons as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And this fulfills the prophecy of John the Baptist in Luke 3.16. When John said that one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to unloose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. These divided tons of fire symbolized holiness and the fire of purification. Fire appears throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of holiness. As an example, you have the Lord speaking and appearing to Moses in the burning bush. The bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And, and Moses goes and turns toward and look at, to look at that bush and, and see this unusual phenomenon of, of a bush burning. 
but not being consumed. When Moses comes close to that bush, the Lord speaks to Moses from that bush and commands him to take his sandals off. The place he is standing on is holy. He is standing on holy ground. Fire is a symbol of God's great holiness. And in Malachi 3, verse 233, we read that the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is like a refiner's fire. That would have been a, a fire that is, is superheated to purify metal. In Malachi 2, verse 2 through 3, we read that, that this messenger of the covenant, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. As Christ is the risen and ascended King, he does this work of refining and purifying through the spirits. The Spirit sanctifies the people of the Lord. We saw earlier that one of the ways that the Spirit works is in regenerating, but the other way the Spirit works is in sanctifying and purifying the people of God. And when the Spirit comes upon the disciples in the forms of divided tons of fire, is a declaration that each one of them is holy. They are people set apart from the rest of the world. Just as a burning bush is unique from all other bushes, so these disciples were unique from every single other person. They were set apart from the rest of the unbelieving world because the Lord was declaring, you are holy. You are to be set apart. And they were so set apart because of the redemptive work of Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are holy. You are set apart. We saw a couple weeks ago where Peter says that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Your identity is in Christ. This makes you unique from everybody else. And part of that identity is that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells within you. When Christ became man, he was Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Christ ascended up into heaven, he sent his Spirit to be God dwelling in us. And as you live in this world, you must live in light of this truth. You must live knowing that you are to be a people set apart and that the Holy Spirit is in you, setting you apart from the rest of the world. This is one of the great wonders of God's love towards us, that His Spirit would dwell within us and give us power to speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, power to have victory over sin. As Paul says in Romans 6, you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are a people born of the Spirit. But in another way, the Spirit works as a flaming fire is in removing the wicked and hypocrites from the church. 
We will see in Acts 5 that Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. And as a direct result of that, the Holy Spirit kills them both. In so doing, the Spirit is purifying the church, even as a refiner will purify silver or gold through fire. And this removal also coincides with what John the Baptist says about Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire in Luke 3. We read earlier from from verse 16, but verse 17 describes what that looks like. In Luke 13, verse 17, we read, Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There are real active judgments that fall upon unbelievers who live in continued disobedience to God, all the while pretending to be followers of Christ. God is jealous for his bride, for those he has redeemed, and he will protect them from hypocrites who would seek to to poison his church. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. And this purification will often take the form of of the Holy Spirit working through the officers of the church as they engage in the duty of church discipline. When officers of the church are, are committed and submitted to God's word and have the Spirit working in them, they are using the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so the gospel goes out to the nation. It goes out to the nations. And it does so not weakly, but with the power and might of the fiery spirit. It goes forth, regenerating souls, sanctifying souls, and purifying God's church. That brings us to the third and final sign of Pentecost. We read in Acts 2 verse 4, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Disciples did not just have these signs appearing all around them. The Holy Spirit didn't just blow around them like the wind will blow around us. But the Spirit caused the winds of His power to fill the disciples. Spirit's purifying fire didn't just burn above the disciples, but it burned inside their own hearts, such that they spoke forth with their tongues the wonderful works of God. And the disciples didn't just praise God in their own language, but they began to speak in many different languages. Now, it's important to note that that Luke highlights that these were Galileans speaking in these tongues. Galileans were not known for their brilliance. They're not known for their education. They likely had a, a very peculiar dialect that made them stand out from the other Jews. And that dialect likely didn't have the the polish and refinement that we might ascribe to a man like 
Sinclair Ferguson with his thick Scottish brogue. Rather, they would probably much more likely have been like a Texan. They would have stood out like a sore thumb in their conversations. But these uneducated Galileans were speaking languages they had never studied. And they were proclaiming the praises of God in these different tongues. You'll hear some people say that this was just a miracle on the ears. That everyone everyone was saying some sort of, of gibberish. And that the real miracle was in the hearers. But that's not what the text describes. The text describes these people speaking all these different languages. The miracle is the miracle of the tongue, not of the ears. And, and this was a great racket. You first had that sound of a mighty rushing wind. That would likely not have just been audible in the room where they were, but, but it would have been heard in other parts of Jerusalem. And now all the people are coming out of that room speaking the praises of God in all these different languages. They're creating a racket. They're creating a disturbance. And people from all over Jerusalem are wondering, what is going on? What is this? With it being the Feast of Weeks, Jews from all over the world were gathered to worship God. They were gathered to celebrate. Acts 2, verses 5 through 6 says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. You truly have people from all over the world hearing their native languages. Fifteen distinct people groups are mentioned. Parthians, Mede, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. That's almost a whole known world at this time. And that these men were speaking all these different languages was a clear testament to all these Jews gathered that the gospel was now to go out to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Any Jew who knew his scripture would understand this to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm after psalm speaks of the nations of the earth worshiping God. This was a testament that the gospel, that the gospel doors of salvation were now thrown open to all nations of the world. Now, now salvation, we have to understand that salvation was never restricted just to the people of Israel. And we've noted that in the past. We've never noticed several foreshadowings of, of the gospel doors being thrown open to the nations. You have Rahab the harlot confessing to the two spies that the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth and on earth beneath. In so doing, she was renouncing the, the Canaanite deities the city of Jericho would have been worshipping. She would have been a traitor to her own people. And then you have Caleb 
that the other faithful spy with Joshua. He stood in opposition to the Israelite spies, but he himself was of a, of, from, from the a tribe of, in Philistia. He was a, a Kenzanite. But he believed the promises of the Lord. Then perhaps you also remember the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea. These men came to faith in the Lord and they worshipped and sacrificed to Jehovah. Not to mention the entire city of Nineveh coming to faith as well. Those are all foreshadowings of what we see happening here at Pentecost. At Pentecost, Christ was declaring loudly that he is king over all the nations of the earth. And it is time for them to come and worship him as savior. And this is what was promised in Psalm 72, which we sang earlier. In Psalm 72, we read that Christ shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. With the disciples speaking in tongues, there was a clear declaration that a church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, as he's seen, poured out upon them. The church is now to go into all nations, proclaiming that gospel. We saw in Acts 1 verse 8, Acts 1 verse 8, Christ says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy and a command now for the church not to sit by, but to go to war, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And the church today must still be about the work of gospel proclamation. There seems to be much confusion in today about what the work of the church actually is. Many churches act more like entertainment gurus than gospel ambassadors. Pastors are more like life coaches than proclaimers of the word of God. Churches have sadly ceased being hospitals for the spiritually sick, instead have become fellowship halls for the outwardly righteous. But the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, must be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, must proclaim that, that the nations of the earth would worship him. We are a Reformed Presbyterian church. But as a Reformed Presbyterian church, we must never let what makes us distinct from other Presbyterian church make us lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A cappella psalm singing must never become the gospel. 
We must never make our chief calling cards, our views on the mediatorial kingship of Christ or our beliefs regarding voting. We must make the gospel central and those truths will flow from making the gospel central. We as a church must be known first and foremost for our faithful gospel proclamation. Must be a church that believes that people are not saved by the eloquence of our arguments, by the beauty of our church, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in the service, we read from Genesis 11, which described the world shortly after the flood. Everybody spoke the same language, and they were all living together. In opposition to God's command to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9 to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, these people decided to build a city so that they could dwell together, so that they could make a name for themselves. They set their minds to build a tower whose top was in the heavens. This tower had the express purpose of exalting man. It was a tower that could reach up to heaven. In a very real sense, they were desiring to make themselves like God, knowing good and evil, which is the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve fell in. Adam and Eve desired to be like God. And these people at Babel desired to become like God. They're rejecting their God-given duty. In much the same way that churches today forget their God-given duty. But the Lord, in response to their pride, confused their language so that nobody could understand the other. Man has tried to get up to God and exalt himself, but God came down and humbled man. But what we see happening in Acts 2 is a reversal of Babel. Prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the church had engaged in frequent prayer. There were some ten days between the outpouring of the Spirit and the ascension. And as we've noted before, the text lends the perspective that these ten days were filled with seeking the Lord in prayer. These days were filled with with submitting oneself to the will of God as made known in His Word. The disciples in obedience waited for the promise of the Father. And they waited for the promise not by exalting themselves, but doing that humbling work of prayer. The Lord, in response to their humble faith, came down and blessed them abundantly. The Lord filled them with the Holy Spirit and caused them to speak with other tongues the wonderful works of God. This was not for the exaltation of man. As of, oh, now you have all these gifts. They're so wonderful. These gifts were used for the express purpose of exalting God, of proclaiming the wonders of salvation. The Lord reversed the curse brought upon the people of Babel so that the good news of the gospel 
could be made known to every tongue and tribe and nation so that Christ would get the glory that he deserved. The Lord, by the outpouring of the Spirit, was declaring there was now one thing that would unite the peoples of the earth. It was not political philosophies. It was not the kingdoms of man. It was not the Roman Empire. It was the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone will unite the people of the earth. And so amid a heavily divided world, let us be a church that believes the Lord's declaration at Pentecost. Let us believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the sinner and cause him to believe on Christ. Let us believe in the power of the Spirit to sanctify and purify his church. And so let us go forth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the peoples of the earth. Let's pray that God, that the Spirit, would blow upon the spiritually slain and cause them to live. And let's be faithful to our God-given duty to proclaim the gospel. For God, the Father, has made of one blood all the nations of the earth, and he commands everyone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be saved. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we praise your great and glorious name that you have poured out your Spirit that you are reigning on high and subduing kingdoms and nations and peoples to yourself. Lord, it is our prayer that the peoples of the earth would praise you. Lord, it is our prayer that we would be faithful to what you have entrusted us with that we would be faithful to our duty in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would ever be at work in our hearts and in the hearts of those who hear your word, that you might save a people to yourself and that those people might proclaim in whatever tongue and language they use the wonderful works of God. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.